Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I am Andy Stewart, occasional filmmaker and more frequent podcaster. And joining us this week, he's a filmmaker, you know him from the Bully Brothers Dracula, Unusual Attachment, Halloween Trick and many more, it's Michael Verratti. Michael, hello. Hello, hello. I'm so excited to be here, especially to talk about this movie. (laughs) Yes, I am also excited to have you here to talk about this movie. It's been a little while since I watched it, but my goodness, I'm glad that I've revisited it. Uh, you know, I think it holds up, and I, you, you said the greatest sequel uh, of all time, I think maybe even before we recorded, and I don't disagree, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> now, Michael, when we were talking about uh, which film you were going to do, uh, which one you were going to choose for the show, you landed on, uh, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're on, Return of the Killer Tomatoes or Return of the Killer Tomatoes. Sure, um, yes. Yeah, you explained in kind of like pretty reasonable detail why you settled on it. So yeah, what was kind of the driver behind you choosing this one? Interestingly enough, my work in the world of genre films is is very tied to Killer Tomatoes because it's where my interest sort of began. And uh, I'll, I'll tell the story as quickly as possible. But when I was a little kid, I was afraid of everything. I was not interested in spooky stuff. I was not interested in creepy things. My parents loved to tell the story that if even the music got a little tense, I would run over and turn off the TV. So <laughs> not only did I not want to see it like I was policing mom and dad too like no and uh, <laughs> and and that sort of maintained for a while and then uh, I was flipping through the TV guide because I grew up during the time that you had to do that and I had seen a listing for a USA up all night double feature of attack of the killer tomatoes and return of the killer tomatoes wow. and just seeing those words in print I was like wow I, I don't know what this is but it sounds silly and I want to watch it and uh, for listeners who maybe aren't familiar, uh, USA Up All Night was a show that was on on Friday and Saturday nights from the end of the 80s through sort of the mid-90s that was uh, kind of like a late-night double feature that hosted horror films, B-movies, cult films, uh, exploitation movies, sex comedies, and it was hosted by this woman named Rhonda Shear, who is sort of a bubbly valley girl kind of character. And it just so happened that week they were doing this Killer Tomatoes double feature, and I harangued my mom. I was like, this sounds great. I want to watch it. And she, knowing that I was sort of prone to like freaking out, was like, okay, you can watch it, but I will watch it with you. Just, you know, good parenting. She didn't stop me from watching it, but she was sort of like, I'll be kind of like with you in this endeavor. And uh, so we made a big bowl of popcorn. Um, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes started. She passed out like 15 minutes in and like slept (laughs) through both movies. But I was... (laughs) awake and I watched both movies back to back and then how the network used to do is Rhonda would sign off and they'd just play the movies again and so then I watched them again the whole way through on the same night so I saw them both twice in one evening and by morning it was sort of like this renewed baptism in the world of of weird because like (laughs) and while I recognize that Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and Return of the Killer Tomatoes aren't necessarily like what we would consider hardline horror films it sort of was like this awareness that there's this whole other kind of movie out there and it kind of felt forbidden and strange and like not what I was seeing at the multiplex not what my friends were talking about at school and I became obsessed with those movies and I wanted to seek them out and I wanted to see them all I wanted to be in on the secret and so because of those movies I started dipping further and further in and finding all these other films and eventually it leads me to you know not just the mainstream franchises like Friday or Elm Street but then I'm looking at Argento movies and uh, you know exploitation classics and Herschel Gordon Lewis because it all had that era of the forbidden and I owe that all 
to the Killer Tomatoes. And I've told that story a lot when people ask me, like, why horror movies? Because you get that question when you make these, like, you know, what, why do you like horror? And I realized I throw out the titles of Killer Tomatoes a lot, but I never get to actually talk about the movies themselves. So when you asked me to pick a film, I was like, this is my chance. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Okay, so I like this because a lot of the people that come on and a lot of the films that people choose are kind of like, oh, I remember being into this when I was a kid, but it's never been like a proper full-blown kind of gateway entry point film like these seem to be. So why Return rather than Attack for this? Well, I thought Return because there's a lot of stuff to really dig into with Return. I mean, first off, it's just fun to talk about George Clooney and his first film in this movie. Uh, But also, what I really like about Return of the Killer Tomatoes is it has that sort of 80s sheen to it, which is always great for discussion. But what I also really appreciate about that is that it knowingly has that 80s sheen. This movie is all about sort of making fun of the excess of the decade (laughs) and sort of the tropes of the decade. So I think in discussing the movie, like the original movies are really great, if not low-budget spoof of creature features but this one is a spoof of both creature features and the machine that makes them and I just think that that's like really delightful I mean my first watch was tonight and I largely agree with you (laughs) (laughs) I'll say Um, Andy yeah What's your background with uh, this entire franchise? Uh, my background with the Killer Tomatoes or Tomatoes franchise kind of started with the cartoon. Uh, Mitch, I know we did uh, the Toxic Avenger fairly recently, and mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about the, that that was spun off into a cartoon. Uh, the same thing happened here with uh, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Like, the, weirdly, this spawned a series. John Aston came back and played Dr. Gang- or Professor Gangrene in it. And I, I remember kind of watching that probably round about the same time that Toxic Crusaders was on, to be honest. Okay. And then... I think it was. It must have been. Must have been Bravo in the UK again that I saw Return of the Killer Tomatoes on. I didn't see Attack until way, way, way later. Okay. Uh so yeah, I remember watching it in my in my bedroom. I don't remember it coming from the creepy guy that used to rent videos out of his van or <laughs> the video shop around the corner who would not question your age at all when you went in. Mm-hmm. Uh so I think it must have been on Bravo because I've got a distinct memory of watching it in a very specific bed. Bedroom. Okay. Uh, sure. So yeah, I must have been maybe 13, 14 when I saw this for the first time. Okay. So I'm coming in quite far ahead of the pack here, watching it for the first time, which is 34 then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Michael, I don't know if you've heard the show before, but um, at this point, we do make uh, everyone that comes on the show do one thing really quickly, and it is for the benefit of anyone that's listening that may not have seen the film. Okay. So, um, Andy, do we have 30 seconds on the clock? Of course we do, yep. So, uh, Michael, I'm going to count you in, and your mission, should you choose to accept it, will be to give us your best 30-second synopsis of Return of the Killer Tomatoes. How'd you feel? Sure. Okay. Three, two, one, go. Following the events of the Great Tomato War in the original movie, Dr. Gangrene, played by John Aston, is back trying to create an army of tomatoes to replace government leaders and prominent officials. And what's happening is our heroes accidentally stumble upon it and foil the plan when our lead guy falls in love with a girl who's actually a tomato, but leads them to the evil professor's plot. And uh, chaos and hijinks ensue. George Clooney's very horny the whole time. (laughs) And uh, John Aston is uh, really giving us his greatest, greatest evil. Fullness. Great. Not bad. That was pretty great. Yeah, there was several points there where I was quite content. If you'd have stopped it, I would have thought that was a great effort. But you kept going. Well, I actually thought about stopping, but I was like, you know what? I've got 30 seconds. I might as well shout out John Aston again. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, when you asked why Return, one of the reasons that I also selected Return is I really, really, really like John Aston. And uh, while he is the primary villain of the franchise, much like Jason Voorhees, he doesn't appear until the sequel, and I wanted the opportunity to talk about him, so... That's fair. I, um, I gotta say as well, in the great pantheon of villain names, uh, Mortimer Gangrene's high on my list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, the, the, for me, 
there's never really a question of which one of these is the more fun to talk about. Yeah, the first one's fine, but the second one's really great. And then I think there's kind of diminishing returns a little bit on the two sequels. I do really enjoy Killer Tomatoes Eat France yeah. while, recogni while recognizing that it is like... I think this one walks the line between uh, movie movie and spoof very well, whereas Killer Tomatoes Eat France really, really leans into a lot of the silly. <laughs> I think that's fair, yeah. And I also think that uh, when you look at you look at the casting as you do have people like John Aston and people like George Clooney and kind of as first kind of big main film role but yeah there was obviously a lot more money to play with here and I think that it shows I mean Mitch I know you haven't seen Attack of the Kill tonight but those oh yeah I should probably get that out there yeah uh, I have yeah. not I uh, took a moment to familiarize myself with the events of the first one sure good good this film does um, a good job of catching you up yeah there's yeah. a pretty good previously on kind of like pretty early doors in there and they play it for a laugh which I think is great yeah absolutely and I think that like it's funny Michael that you said that you kind of saw this as part of this kind of standard double feature when the actual framing device for this is a Bob Dead's one dollar movie yeah so it was sort of, it felt very meta I will tell you it's like because here's I was watching someone host the movie and then the second movie starts and someone's hosting the movie within hosting the movie yeah <laughs> yeah it's like Russian dolls truly I love this framing device very much this is the kind of thing that I tend to swallow whole like this is like when you kind of greet me with this this is the kind of thing that I'm just kind of like yeah okay it's difficult to dissuade me when you start with something like this I think well it knows what it is I mean the movie you know from the beginning keeps bringing up the fact that the movie itself thinks it's a bad movie which then makes pulling off all the silliness all the better because you kind of just know that everybody making the movies in on the joke mm -hmm. like the fourth wall breaking stuff and the kind of meta stuff that this film does spend so much time making this out to be terrible that it is kind of even more rewarding when you take a step back and appreciate the fact that it's really pretty great oh absolutely I mean I think the product placement gags alone are are uh, far and away some of my my favorite bits of humor in the whole movie. <laughs> and when I th I think about just how clever it was, a good you know twenty years later, that was literally the conceit of the Josie and the Pussycats movie was all about product placement. And so it is something that uh, I, I love seeing a movie lambast kind of corporate culture. Yeah. There's a scene that's pretty much that pretty much rips this off wholesale in Wayne's World as well. The product placement stuff. Oh yeah, with the Pepsi can in Wayne's World, right? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. like Reebok tracksuits and like it's like Domino's pizza or something. Well, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen that conceit used like a lot in the time since this has come out and far less effectively and far and like in the way that's far less funny, I think. I agree. Also, before we had, I'm just thinking another layer on top of us actually getting to the film itself, Michael, uh, is the fact that we see what would be the opening credits of the film uh, Big Breasted Girls Go to the Beach and Take Their Tops Off before it gets pulled because it's been shown three times the previous week. <laughs> What's really funny, too, about me seeing this on USA Up All Night is USA Up All Night used to have a very healthy balance of horror movies and like this kind of like 80s sex comedy, softcore hilarity. And so that playing on Up All Night and then them doing that it's almost sort of like when they made that movie they were like invariably it's going to end up on this show so we might as well kind of poke fun at what our fate is okay yeah yeah, that's yeah cool. if that's the case it's actually really quite clever because like you say stuff like Porky's was flying around at this time and like meatballs and all, all that stuff was kind of out there already so uh, it's fun to see it sent up this way and in such a, a, a I just want to talk quickly about all the, the lyrics in this film which I think were mostly written by John DeBello just about every single song in this is dynamite and the same has to be said for the theme tune to Big Breasted Girls Go to the Beach and Take Their Tops Off you know what I really think that those guys who made these movies are truly um, renaissance men of low budget cinema in the way that they did it all mostly mm -hmm. And it works. You know, yeah. a lot of times when you wear a lot of hats, you're not going to be very good at something. Like, you know, I can direct or write a movie, but I'm not going to be able to write the theme song. But John DiBello did all of that and then some with his with his production partners and it's like he got a major franchise out of it absolutely he must have done pretty well for himself off the back of what on the surface is a pretty outlandish concept but i mean he's in this as well like he plays like at least two roles in here yeah he plays uh charles white who's the news anchor which is a recurring <laughs> character uh in all of his movies even the not tomato movies he always pops up not always in person but by name yeah okay uh and then I know other filmmakers have made their uh, news reporters named Charles White, like sort of as an homage to that. And then he plays himself as well. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. 
one of my favorite kind of recurring jokes uh, is one that we get introduced to you uh, really early on when we meet uh, Professor Gangrene and we see him kind of transforming the tomatoes into people using the jukebox. The various ways that this comes in and out with different music turning the tomatoes into different people and different pastiches is so funny. Oh, yeah. I also love that this movie really decided that even though it's a Killer Tomatoes sequel and we see like some tomatoes here and there, uh, there aren't really a great number of tomatoes actually in this movie because they had sort of already done that with the first movie. Mm -hmm. And so now we're on to another villainous plot. Let's turn the tomatoes into controllable people. And that's cool because then you can get the gag that you just talked about. Yeah, an extremely oily, muscular army. Yeah, good for him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We do kind of get a little bit of a catch-up on what's happened to everybody since the events of the first film, because we do see that Wilbur's celebrity status has parlayed into the opening of uh, Finletter's Pizzeria, presumably the first tomato-less pizzeria. Yeah, I mean, and it looks gross. (laughs) Every oh, single yeah. pizza that you see in this, every single description of pizzas that you don't see, sounds fucking terrible. Top to bottom abominations. <laughs> but his nephew Chad, our main character really here, working as a delivery boy, um, who is crushing on Tara, who lives with Professor Gangrene, and is his lover, we, we, uh, we find, when he uh, goes to make the delivery. <laughs> sure, yeah. You delivered the line, uh, and, and this is his lover, Mitch, with, with a real kind of coyness that I found a bit unsettling there. Yeah, that was uh, just, I just kind of right turned into ASMR there for just for a sec. It sounded like you were a bit embarrassed that that might, in <laughs> fact, be the case. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think Anthony Stark in this is absolutely brilliant. I remember him from being a, a younger man from Repossessed, which is another great spoof of The Exorcist in this case. And he also played Jimmy in Seinfeld, the guy who only refers to himself in the first person um so uh, yeah i think he's absolutely excellent across the the entire span of this i particularly like that he can't get in or out of his car without falling oh yeah i i can't imagine that he didn't sleep very well during the entirety of this shoot because every time he's on scene he's just like at 11 oh yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely um i actually think that him and uh, george clooney his roommate matt who we meet in a little while i think they're really watchable together yeah yes i also think it's quite clear quite early on watching george clooney that he's just got star written all over him he's so effortless in this movie yeah. and and just has that kind of classic cool going about him and i do think that you know it, i'm not sure how much the character was informed by george clooney or vice versa because it almost feels like no one else could have played that part yeah i think that um we've watched kind of we've watched a lot of films from this kind of era with these kind of sketchy kind of sleazy characters who come off quite gross when they're played by a person who isn't George Clooney. <laughs> right. I think it's really funny that around this time when we get the kind of exposition news where we understand that the events of the first film has been called the Great Tomato War. Um, right. And you get this kind of this amazing story about these teenagers being caught with tomatoes at the border and all these kinds of things. I also like the the flashback, like we talked about it, kind of like the kind of previously on is Wilbur reminiscing about how the general populace were basically punished for the tomato complacency in the run up to the Great Tomato War. Right. And how this unfolds, like, it, for, for one thing, like I say, from my point of view, kind of entering into this as someone who hasn't seen it, it's handy, but also like you say Michael it's played for laughs in that same meta way when somebody calls basically complaining about them reusing so much old footage (laughs) which we would see in all of these old horror films at the time I mean I think this is the first indicator that they're sort of making fun of kind of the sequel culture of the 80s Uh, because how many of our our big franchises even like you look at any of the Friday movies for a few in a row most of them always begin with the campfire scene from part 2 where they're explaining like who Jason is (laughs) Some of those those bits at the the start of the kind of part six, part seven, Friday the 13th films, like they they go on for like 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah. The other thing I think about this entire segment is that it is, like I I was trying to uh, make notes while I was watching this and there's no way I caught even half of the visual jokes. Oh no. Um, in this on first watch, I'm gonna have to go back because these were flying at me way quicker than I could take in. Oh yeah, this movie is packed to the gills with little just little things that even, you know, watching it in preparation for this, I noticed things that I either forgot about or just had never noticed before. And it really shows an attention to detail on the part of the filmmakers to like really, really build this world. And knowing how ridiculous the world is. I mean, there's there's a sequence way later on that we'll, I'm sure, talk about. But when uh, 
they pull up in the garbage truck to the prison, there's a little sticker on the garbage truck that says, uh, kidnapped uh, person on board. (laughs) (laughs) And I had had never seen that before. One of my favorite, like one of my favorite things in terms of just having bad expectations subverted is when we meet Igor as well. Um, who obviously kind of like knowing nothing about this, I was expecting a kind of like lumbering hunchback assistant rather than this kind of like blonde coiffure Donald Trump power tie wearing kind of would be broadcaster guy. I love Igor. Uh, yeah, Igor same. and and Professor Gangrene are the two recurring characters that then like proceed through all of the sequels, played by both Steve Lundquist and John Aston all th- all the way through yeah. uh, Killer Tomatoes Eat France. And this, I think, was Steve Lundquist's first movie. And I just love just that energy that he brings. And I also just really appreciate that he is sort of a, a kind of commentary on yuppie culture of the 80s, where it's just, oh, this is my middle management job until I get the job I really want. And uh, he with the suit and tie and just the overly, um, I don't know. I, he's such a good Igor. I think he might be my favorite mad scientist Igor in the history of film. I mean, it is, it's pretty amazing. And like I said, I, I love it when he's like, I know you're only doing this until something opens up in broadcasting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unexpectedly significant character introduction here, FT. Uh, yeah, FT's wonderful. Yeah, FT kind of existed in that era of the 80s where every movie needed some sort of cute sidekick, which is something I, I particularly usually don't like. Like, I don't like when I'm watching an adventure or a fantasy film and everything's very dire and dark, but then there's just like the cutesy wood sprite or, you know, whatever. Mm. Um, but for some reason here, because everything is played with tongue in cheek, FT just kind of is so wonderful. You can't yeah. get you can't you can't be mad at FT. It's funny you mentioned that because I watched Willow again the other night for the first time in years, and there's those two little tiny, tiny, tiny guys that kind of follow Willow and Val Kilmer around on their, their quest, and they are the most annoying little creatures ever. Yeah, I don't know what that was. I think that like people thought maybe there needed to be a family appeal because that was like especially prevalent in the '80s, and we see it in all the major franchises, especially if it's fantasy uh, or especially if it's science fiction. It's not enough that, like, you know, there's an evil force taking out over the galaxy, but me, you know, the rugged hero, and my chirping robot sidekick, Bonk, or whatever. And you're like, no, we don't need Bonk. Everything's bad enough. We don't need Bonk. Nobody asked for Bonk. Exactly. <laughs> But yeah, FT is like a reject to Mao. Uh, this is like his experiment doesn't pan out. He gets thrown out. And Tara rescues him, and at this point, I, I did not anticipate that. Spoiler alert: he would uh, go on to be the hero of the piece. That's right. Yeah, we also learn here that he's actually Tara's brother. Oh yeah, that's right. Must have been on the same vine. Yeah. Sure. (laughs) I love that the rejection of FT is sort of what kind of causes Tara to throw her shackles off, you know, in so many words. She has been a subservient character to Professor Gangrene and has gone along with whatever he wants until he tries to throw out FT and she realizes maybe this guy is not so great. Mm, I get the impression from what you've just said there and from... Tara's character throughout the film and from what you kind of see of Professor Gangrene and her that their relationship gets quite dark at times behind closed doors <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> I think that's a fair assessment yes but yeah Tara heads for, heads for the pizzeria when she kind of like uh, when she turns up and gives Chad the pitch again I think this is amazing but the writing is so funny here yeah it, I, I love this scene especially because she at this point is sort of sold as like a character without personality who only exists to do Gangrene bidding and so she I think is trying to present herself in the way that she thinks human men want what I appreciate really about this scene and especially prescient for the 80s considering the porkies the screwballs the you know all of the the meatballs and all of those kind of sex comedies is here's a movie where like this woman shows up and she's like we're gonna have sex now question mark and he's like whoa no he's literally actively trying to avoid that to respect her in the moment and I I I really appreciate that the filmmakers did this because although it was a different time, it kind of shows like, okay, like, you know, it doesn't have to be about the objectification. And it's really kind of smart and and it's played for laughs, but it also makes Chad a nice guy, for lack of a better term. Briefly, because he does have sex with her, but it it, it does act in this instance as a nice kind of separation from 
Matt. Yes. And I think also, arguably, it kind of makes the film come out ahead of the curve in a lot of ways from a lot of the stuff that was out at the time. I agree. That's that's uh, really kind of what I appreciate about it, is it's sort of established that this doesn't have to be the sole motivator of this character. Yeah, exactly. But you're right, Andy. Ultimately, um, it does happen. She turns up in their, in their flat in the morning. I think it's really funny. Um, it's, again, just one of, like, a kind of a throwaway thing that I almost missed. But when she's talking about making breakfast for them, and she says she'll make them a breakfast of toast, bacon, eggs, waffles, and toast. Yeah. Yes. And that same kind of like automated reeling off a thing. Like I thought that was I thought that was great. I also think that I love the fact that Chad is so suspicious of it and Matt just isn't. You do see her later, Mitch. Uh she's just sitting at a table just making piece of toast after piece of toast after piece of toast. Just like Yeah, I, I had that labelled up as the toast fort. Yeah, it's kinda like <laughs> I've lived that life. I've been there when I used to smoke a lot of weed. Hey, toast is good. Toast is good. Honestly, show me a situation that hasn't been improved by the addition of toast. Also, show me a post-coital conversation where the introduction of profit margin chat doesn't get your plums pumping further. <laughs> oh my! I, I love that little speech that she rattles off because the the, the boys are just like totally dumbfounded. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, it's actually one of it's one of my favorite scenes of the whole thing. I think that's quite funny here. Go back to kind of Matt's obliviousness in the face of her kind of perfection. That even though around about this time, like Chad's starting to think, oh, there's something not quite right here. Something stinks, literally, because when they go, he's like, look, come and see this, and he takes him into the toilet, and it's quite clear that she's been showering. And, and fertilizer and, Ch- and uh, Matt's still just like yeah so what she's organic <laughs> more great stuff from Igor here he was kind of like cementing his status as my Dark Horse favourite character when we see him doing the fake news broadcast when he interviews the teddy bear I love Igor's bedroom because all of the framed photos are of like news anchors it's yeah. Walter Conkright D- Dan Rather and then the like portrait like above the mantle is a painting of Diane Sawyer which I think is really just great because it makes it makes him like an obsessive like I want to be a news anchor but also like crazily close to serial killer status yes yeah I also um, love that he drives around in that garbage truck that he's decorated with like a news corporation's kind of logos oh the um, k-i-g-r yeah. yes the very same also did you notice in the scene when he storms out um there's like this lingering shot of him at the door and um his broadcasting school credentials like his certificate is on the wall and the name is just igor <laughs> Yes. Oh, and the uh, certificate from the broadcasting school is the Ted Baxter School of Journalism, who in Ted Baxter was a news anchor on the Mary Tyler Moore show. So it's not even a wow. real news anchor. Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. And talk a little bit more about the music in this. Um, by the time we had gotten to kind of the main theme, even uh, for the credits, I had written down the fact that I was impressed by the sheer volume of original songs in this. Even more impressed by the standard. When we see this kind of traditional romance montage of a Tara and Chad with this massive Andy Williams style ballad about he's glad how he's glad she's not tomato paste and all this so good are you talking about the song uh, with the lyrics you know I like it when you touch me there yes, yes the very same I think that this partially works because the lyrics are really funny but really works because the actual musical detail is so on point yeah it really affects that sort of like sexy 80s montage style where the boy and the girl have fallen in love and here they like even they're at the beach and they're you know holding hands and going to the store i love it i think it's great well you know the original attack of the killer tomatoes was billed as a a musical comedy and i i think this movie has just as many original songs in it so i think that's something the franchise has always held on to also them being constantly hounded by the mime that's hilarious Oh, yeah. And this is, is amazing. <laughs> He's incredibly intense. Although Chad keeps punching him, and I don't know that the mime's that offensive. No, I think, I, th- I, think that, I think that that's still an overreaction. I would think it would be more offensive if it was somebody who was talking, because I think you could largely ignore a mime. This movie has mime problem. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know what? It gets so many things right, but that's the way it's problematic. <laughs> I love uh, when Tara takes him to the shop to buy plant supplies, and we see the kind of black market tomato transaction happening. Amazing. I love that. I, I just the idea that the, the world building for something so preposterous is a tomato war in a world without tomatoes. But then the attention to, they could have just literally, you know, after the first movie said, oh, no one uses tomatoes anymore. But here's the underground market for people still wanting tomatoes. And it's like an Italian market guy, you know, or the, the as you mentioned earlier, the teens smuggling tomatoes over the border. It's silly, but it's also such good attention to detail. I love that. Like, 
like he's selling like particular strains in this case it's acapulco red and he's got like a little <laughs> he's got like a little salt shaker attached to his jacket because everyone knows that tomatoes are better with salt on them uh and i also love that there's that kind of riff on the godfather theme playing over the top of it all yes straight out of this i also love the fact that like I, like it should be ridiculous and it is but it's just like i kind of was beginning at this point to realize that this film was pitched at the level of ridiculous that i just eat up and when she outs herself as being kind of pro tomato and has the feel of being this big relationship deal breaker yeah i i really like that the the kind of I guess the way that Chad's been brought up with his Uncle Wilbur is that tomatoes are, without a doubt, the enemy. Um, so for her to be kind of fighting toma- like tomatoes and vegetables corner, he's very much like, no, I won't have this. Like, tomatoes almost destroyed the world, they almost destroyed my family. Tomatoes are bad because deep down she's uh, she's a tomato you can see why that might cause some problems no and i love just like a lot of the over-the-top humor in this there's there's allegory there i mean it can be applied to very real situations it can be very uh, applied to, as a commentary to things that were going on or continue to go on and it's played for laughs but it's smartly played for laughs they, they could have done a whole completely other angle at that but the fact that we have to watch chad kind of struggle through his upbringing and move past that to grow as a person mm. that is, there's something really smart about that i guess there's also something to be said for the fact that through that and through the kind of arrival of ft to kind of save the day there's a growth in wilbur as well with regards to tomatoes yes everybody grows a little thanks to tomatoes <laughs> By the way, I love that straight off the back of this argument, they go out for dinner, and it's one of those really kind of stilted scenes where there's a bit of an atmosphere. I've been there, I know that feeling so well when you're forced to go to a night out fresh off the back of an argument, and it just permeates every discussion. Oh, it's the worst. Oh, can we talk too about while they're at that restaurant before uh, before everything goes down at the restaurant? The waiter who like oh. lists first off that man that actor was chewing the scenery in a in a great way. <laughs> Amazing, but, yeah. But also every menu item that he says to them sounds so incredibly gross. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think it's very turnip heavy. Yeah. Yeah, turned up very much the calling card of a uh, Le Restaurant. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, the restaurant is called Le Restaurant. <laughs> Again, like this is just like a really funny and clever way to introduce the kind of what happens when the tomato people hear music when he goes to the bathroom and uh, their table gets serenaded by a violinist and the music turns into tomato and then everybody just flees in a panic. Uh, also, I think this scene really shows what a budget this movie had because... There's tons of extras fleeing the restaurant. You know, in a low-budget film world, you would not have that many people to, like, show show this off. Uh-huh. Oh, well, there's so many. And that happens quite a few times in the movie where we see these, like, kind of crazy crowd scenes. I'm trying to imagine just, like, even in San Diego. I assume the first movie, obviously, had been a cult film by this point. Uh, but, you know, the call in San Diego, like, San Diego residents come and run for your life from a tomato. And people showed up in droves. Yeah, I, I was listening to uh, a bit of the commentary on the, the Arrow Video Blu-ray on this with John DeBello. I was kind of dipping in and out of it. And uh, he actually talked about a similar thing in the original film, you know, when um, everyone comes and they all stamp on all the tomatoes um, towards the end and I guess at the kind of close of the Great Tomato War um, like that was just a call that went out and hundreds of people turned up to stomp on those tomatoes they were like it was like I just expected kind of six people to turn up and we'd just maybe change some shoes and just see the tomatoes getting squashed under feet but yeah loads of people turned up I love that people love tomatoes (laughs) (laughs) It's the driver of this entire thing. It's why we're all here. It's true. I mean, it's been been a big drive of my life, strangely. So I I, I get it. There's something um, that comes up here that I just love, and it's a little tiny thing, um, and it's the valley parking gag here, just uh, outside the restaurant where Igor tries to get the garbage truck back, and the guy brings the wrong garbage truck. Right, th- which indicates that more than one person's driving a garbage truck around the city, which I, I love. And and uh, is, pa- is parking it via valet, no less. <laughs> I think that one thing that I, I, I kind of like, I really took to in this is how many great kind of like one scene characters that are um in this are kind of like characters that only have a handful of scenes charles white might be my favorite i didn't realize that obviously he was a mainstay of um john DeBello films but i love this yeah he's pretty great 
I I think I, every Charles White scene I really really love. Um, you know when when he chases after them later on and the crowd kind of basically tramples him I think is hilarious that's not that far away from happening because it's around about here that um, FT kind of goes on a little adventure of his own and uh, via a car wash and almost being eaten amongst other things he gets absolutely kind of like chased by like a proper like pitchfork toting mob I felt very sad for this little tomato here I do think that like FT being kind of booted around into all these different scenarios, like dipped in the chocolate at the ice cream stand, thrown into the car wash, even though I think the styles of goofiness are totally different, this like montage of FT kind of getting kicked around town is like the most trauma-esque of the entire movie. Yes, because absolutely. It's, it's like just the most like every scenario he comes into is one ridiculous, but the people are ridiculous. And it's just that kind of like over the top, like at the car wash, like the girls just like, <laughs> like everybody's just like overly acting in the best possible way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. And no one's noticing there's this fuzzy tomato that they're all just yeah. punting around like a football. <laughs> also reminds me of the, the game of Piggy in the Middle with the severed cock from Street Trash. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We talked about it earlier, um, but the the kind of fourth wall breaking product placement moment happens here or at least the beginnings of that joke start here um this is so great it's uh, basically they the movie runs out of money and they have to find a new way and thanks to george clooney early on showing his uh, business acumen right off the bat here yep entrepreneurial spirit and it is amazing like when we, when we go on into like, kind of the next scene and i think it's it's like uh, Moosehead Beer, Nestle Crunch Bars, Pepsi, all this. We get an intervention from the Federal Vegetable Investigation at this point. <laughs> yes, who is a character from the original film as well. Uh-huh. Investigating reports of tomato activity in the area. <laughs> is this the guy who gets offered, like, uh, Crest toothpaste and stuff like that? Oh, no. Um, he's, he's referring to uh, the Master of Disguise, Sam, who oh, has Sam. arrived with... Um, at this point, it dresses, I think, what Wilbur mistakes as Gaddafi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, it feels like this was just a, a, a kind of like John DeBello going, I really want to put in an, like, a really kind of wild fight scene, but I don't know what else to do it. So let's just put it in here. And yeah, a fight scene would be fine, but I've always wanted to do cowboys. So let's put cowboys in. I've always wanted to have ninjas. So let's put ninjas in. This feels like very much like we're being invited into a filmmaker's kind of kind of childhood sandbox and i'm all for it like yeah this comes out of nowhere i love that it comes out of nowhere it happens and then they're just like get out of the restaurant and everyone leaves and it's not remarked upon as if like every day <laughs> every day at 2 p.m there's a ninja cowboy fight and we it's just part of what happens in our world like to, I, I love the patrons of the restaurant every time we see them from the beginning of the movie like even in this scene they're so nonplussed about everything like the fight's going on the guy's eating he like hits a ninja over the head with a bottle and just keeps eating his sandwich as if it's a, a completely everyday activity <laughs> They kind of uncover the truth about what's going on with uh, Gangrene at this point. We kind of like they see that he's turning tomatoes into people. My one of my again like a really stupid joke that really got me um, is when Chad walks in on Tara with FTE uh, when she's sitting eating the plant food, and they kind of sc- <laughs> and, and they kind of scream back and forth at each other. And I was kind of laughing at the absurdity of it at that point. But it's when FT screams that it really got me. And the screams go on so long, it's so it, long, yeah. It's just it, I think it, it goes from like funny to absurd to annoying to funny again because they just know that they're drying it out. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, I want to talk about a choice that happens a couple of times in this, which is kind of like when we're seeing kind of montages, I think it happens during the FT sequence earlier, and obviously at this point, Tara takes off running and she's kidnapped by Igor, and then they go looking for her, uh, Chad and Michael do. Um, this kind of um, Benny Chad Hill Matt, style... Mitch. Uh, Chad and Matt, sorry, yeah. That's Chad Michael Murray that made me think that. That's what happened there. Um... <laughs> uh, yeah, they go looking for her, and both those times they kind of do this Benny Hill style thing of like speeding the fr- uh, speeding the scenes up. Yeah, and that's um that's where they find the celery sticks too. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's very silly as well. Yeah, at the point where um they're looking for her, and he finds it, and he finds a tomato at a stack of tomatoes at the supermarket that he's convinced is her. I was like, you can basically hook this film to my veins at this point. Mitch, this part in the supermarket here, which is absolutely charged with emotion, right? And it, it's hilarious to me how melodramatic this scene is played, particularly by Chad. Uh, this feels like as good a time as any to drop in some dun 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 tomato facts. Oh, oh, 
okay. This is normally something, Michael, that I would... Uh, uh, very occasionally we'll do a film where the kind of chief antagonists is an animal, be that Congo, be it Zombievers. And I'll give a right. little bit of background on maybe monkeys or maybe Zombievers or beavers. Um, in this case, I've got some facts about tomatoes for you that I think you'll both quite like. Take care, well, man. I'm excited. Tomatoes originally came from South America where their Aztec name translated to plump thing with a navel. Hmm. A bit like myself. (laughs) (laughs) Tomatoes increase in weight as they ripen, even after harvesting. Wow. Here's an interesting one for you, Mitch. Um, Tomatoes are the richest source of lycopene, which is important for the health of the prostate gland in men. (laughs) Why me specifically? (laughs) I know know you're obsessed with prostate health. (laughs) Thanks very much, yeah. (laughs) The tomato is a fruit which we all know. I don't want to hear anything to the contrary. There is no mention of tomatoes in either the Bible or in the complete works of Shakespeare. Well, the Bible makes sense because as we have learned from the these important documentary features, tomatoes are the enemy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, and there is over 10,000 varieties of tomato. And with that, my tomato facts draw to a close because those are the most interesting ones I could find. Uh, yeah, as always, as always, great work. Um, but yeah, no, I can understand that not one of those 10,000 uh, feature in the Bible. I can understand the Bible not wanting to give them a platform. <laughs> yeah, we, we have to be very judicious on our day-to-day lives of making sure the tomatoes never reclaim power. I do no, no. <laughs> have to say that it's interesting that the Bible will give a platform to Satan, the lord of all evil, but refrain from mentioning tomatoes. You have to ask yourself, uh, who is the, the ultimate evil here? Well, Andy, then you, you understand the severity of what we're talking about here. I do know. Yeah. It wasn't It wasn't just the tomato war. It was a great tomato war, which I think implies the severity. Yeah, before that, there was only good tomato wars or average tomato wars, but this was this was the one. <laughs> this is like, like, in universe, this gets taught in schools. Absolutely, it does. So we're kind of pulling it towards not the, not the kind of final standoff of this, but kind of uh, we're setting the scene for what this is going to be. They realize that they can probably use Gangrene's equipment to turn Tara back into a woman. I love the fact that before they take off... Um, and we get this kind of sideline joke that all the product placement in the film has basically made everyone millionaires. By the way, I've got to say, I love that constantly throughout this, after the kind of initial product placement thing, there's a moment where Professor Gangrene turns round that he's got a big massive Pepsi logo on the back of his lab coat. And throughout the film, there's like this terrible painting of Gangrene's house that they use to kind of set the scene anytime we're going to Gangrene's house rather than actually bother shooting it at night. Which I love because obviously they have the house, like because they shoot at the house. So, so it's like it's like the idea that they have this painting is such a deliberate choice. It, it just shows sort of where they were working mentally on how you know to present this world yeah Yeah. it's it's hilarious to me every time you see that painting then you actually see it and someone will pick it up and brandish it at one point later on but there's a bit here where they've just like stuck a a kind of sewn pepsi patch onto it right (laughs) i didn't notice that that's great that's hilarious absolutely brilliant when we get inside Gangrene's kind of lab here and we see the, when they're kind of messing around with the jukebox and seeing what it turns the tomatoes into, I love this, the 80s funk pop turns one of them basically into Michael Jackson. There's one, like the Miami Vice theme basically turns one of them into a replica Don Johnson. Like this joke could have gone on for way longer than it would have and I would have, that it did, should I say, and I would have just eaten it up. Did I miss something? How does, in that room full of millions of tomatoes, how does Chad decide that the tomato that he's got is Tara? Oh, I was going to ask this, yes. Oh, okay. So what happens is when he's in the back of the market looking at all the tomatoes trying to find her, and then he overhears the tomato dealer, smuggler, whatever word we want to use, because the guy's got FT. Uh If If you look at that scene, he's holding up FT, and in his other hand, he has an other tomato. And when Chad runs by, he grabs them both, because assuming he's assuming that FT and Tara are together. So like, if this guy has FT, the other tomato has to be Tara. So he actually doesn't take the tomato from the back room. He takes it from the tomato dealer as he runs by. Right. I love that uh, and, and his massive kind of flood of emotion that he's experiencing in this moment, he's kind of biting some of the tomatoes to test whether or not it's Tara. Presumably she tastes a bit tomato-y. 
<laughs> uh, I don't even want to get into the science of what that means. I, 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 I was gonna say, I like, I, I am not touching the biology of sex with tomato people with a fucking forty foot pole. Thank you. But yeah, in this moment, uh, Gangrene in this kind of standoff squashes the tomato that we believe to be Tara, which is um, emotionally devastating for about a minute until she returns in human form. Yes, after he locks them in their dungeon, uh, in the dungeon of the house, which strangely just looks like a basement. It yeah. does a bit. Yeah, one hundred percent. But yeah, FT is dispatched to save the day, which I thought felt like a gamble. Yeah, in the since moment. FT can't seem to really even make it up the stairs very quickly. He does drive to the pizzeria, though. <laughs> oh. Yeah, on a on a four-wheeler. On a, on a Honda four-wheeler, let's not forget. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's, he's a remarkably skilled driver, but in almost any other aspect of his life, he is terribly uncoordinated. Right, but I guess, you know, in, in the essence of saving his friends, FT was able to pull it together and get to Wilbur, who then assembles the Tomato Task Force from the original film. Yeah, uh-huh, big reunion. Yeah, now the Tomato Task Force, for people who love this cinematic universe, might as well be the Avengers. But, you know, <laughs> uh, so this is our this is our endgame moment, where, like, Matt and Chad are all, like, trapped, and it's like, lo and behold, here they come. Do you want to take this much as best as you can figure it out? Oh, good lord. As, as the only person in the room or at the table who has not seen the first film. Yeah. <laughs> Terrific. Um, <laughs> I'm just really keen to see how you how you plan to explain this. Um, yeah, I am. Um, I don't. I don't really have a plan A for this. Um, the the scene where they, or the scenes where they kind of like where they break into uh, Gangreed's house and lab are um, are pretty amazing. Having like having been alerted by FT, of the kind of things that happen in here, my favorite thing is the entire long form gag of when Wilbur is trying to hit the button on the giant digital readout. Yeah, yeah, which <laughs> which looks like a like a scoreboard or something. Uh, this. This is like kind of like this is kind of like Zucker Brothers humor in a way that really takes my boxes. I think everything in in this whole rescue mission is very Zucker Brothers. I very much feel that that sentiment because there's just so much like slapstick gaggery. Also, when Wilbur breaks into Igor's bedroom and tries to silence the talking teddy bear, and it just he keeps trying to sit on it, and uh, the teddy bear keeps like yelling out different things. It's it's so silly and it's so fun. Yeah, it's it's like a, it's another it's another sequence that's just like absolutely loaded with stuff. And I know I know that I didn't catch it all but um, we do kind of get this chase through the prison once they're, once they're kind of free I love the scene where Professor Gangrene just like assembles an army by just like lining up just maybe 10 or 12 tomatoes and just playing some music and just turning them into action heroes oh yeah and then how they avoided the firefight like the costliness of shooting a, a gunfight was that they just turned the lights off <laughs> Yeah, the lights just come back on and it's just tomato pulp all over the walls. <laughs> <laughs> like kind of in the struggle, um, uh, Professor Gangrene stashes Tara in a gas chamber and basically threatens to gas her. I didn't, well, I didn't, I didn't expect the Bob Dowd secret word thing from the start to pay off. Everything established in the first act pays off. It sure does. Yeah. I, I think that that gag where Chad says right down the kind of barrel of the lens look everything we've set up has come back the, like, there was nothing done here that was accidental including he's like oh not everything and then the pizza that he tosses up at the very start that doesn't come back down lands on his head that's fucking great which is great about that because it's like kind of one of those gags when he throws the pizza dough up in the air unless you're really paying attention you don't even notice that it doesn't come back down he just yeah. tosses up and kind of walks out of frame to bring that back there at the end is just superb. Yeah. Tara is gassed here, which again is sad very, very briefly until we realize that um, tomato people are impervious to the gas. And she also cannot be reversed back into a tomato because the gas, while not killing her, has altered her genes. <laughs> sure. Sure. Basic science. I'm not going to argue with the science of this. Like when I was presented with this as kind of like how this works, I was quite happy to install it as the truth. Yeah. Let me ask you this, Mitch. How did you feel when the hand grenade comes out and it falls to the floor and faced with everyone dying, FT truly becomes the hero and he throws himself onto that grenade and is blown to smithereens? How did how did you feel about that? I thought that this was an incredibly courageous move. Yeah. On on the part of FT, I was um I was sorry to see 
him go and then laterally thrilled when the film kind of absolutely doubles down on its hero's ending and uh, has him survive the grenade blast. Yes, because you can't keep FT down. Also, there's a sequel. You ha- <laughs> he had to be. Absolutely. You're killing your merchandise golden goose. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that, that'd be like blowing Gizmo. 100%. Which I think there's actually an argument for doing because in my view, Gizmo is a risk to everyone, really. It's true. Yeah, I think that Gizmo comes with a lot of red tape, whereas FT is, is pretty noble. It just comes with a lot of red fuzz. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> We're almost done at this point. We um, we kind of, like I say, we get this kind of hero's ending where everyone is basically fine. A parade, more product placement. FT has deservingly become this uh, hero of global repute. By the way, there was a, a rack there in that scene with loads of those FT dolls on it. And I would do almost anything to have one of those. Yeah, I don't know that they ever actually marketed those because I have a feeling that they would be kind of sought collector's items amongst the uh, tomato fan base. 100%. I looked on eBay before coming on to do this and I couldn't see any. Hmm. Well, mm. you know, maybe maybe for the film's whatever anniversary. I really hope that there's a box of those FT dolls somewhere in John DeBello's attic that he decides one day has to sell. Much like all those uh, CDs that your band made, Mitch. Oh, God, yeah. Gross over-ordering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pe- pe- periodically my parents get in touch and they being like, what are we going to do with this box of 300 albums? They're compromising the structural integrity of the house. Oh, wow. Can't sleep for the rafters creaking in the attic. Yeah, I would I would have given everyone one for Christmas if I had more friends, but here we are. <laughs> um, as we conclude with um, what appears to be the beginnings of uh, Big Breasted Tomatoes Go to the Beach and Take Their Tops Off, which is a nice callback. Yeah, um, I don't know if you noticed there, but Matt finally has got his blonde-headed tomato woman. Yes. He went uh, He went back to the lab and allegedly was destroying it, but I think we can infer that he made a whole army of big-breasted tomato women for that musical number. Absolutely. And uh, presumably to kickstart a franchise. You know, this movie could have gone into a lot of different places, but that's the spinoff no one expected. Or asked for. <laughs> I, I also think it's quite fun that the film haven't just sat through Return of the Kill Tomatoes. The film isn't content to just sit back on that. Like, it throws in a gag where perhaps the next film you might see is like Attack of the Soldier Carrots and then you get the further kind of tantalising hint when you hear John Aston shouting I'll see you in Paris that this is just going to roll on and on. I think that that whole credit sequence from the end of Big busty tomato ladies or whatever the fuck it is all the way through the little old lady that tells you that you can't stop watching now because her son spent a lot of time making this film so you need to watch the credits to the death of that TV host guy I think the whole credit sequence from George Clooney with that girl on the beach all the way through to the end is just superb I love the credit sequence of this movie I also love that um, much in that sort of James Bond style it it says halfway through the credits the Killer Tomatoes will return and uh, Killer Tomatoes go to France we know that the movie that was eventually made was Killer Tomatoes Eat France. It wasn't the next movie, but they did get there eventually. And also the carrots in the studio that kill the uh, million dollar movie host and the crew, I kind of viewed as a callback to the stinger at the end of the credits of the original Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, because if people remember, at the very end of the credits of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, it it cuts back to a garden and uh, the carrots pop up out of the dirt and say, it's our time or whatever it is. It's like basically inferring like, you know, the tomatoes are passed, it's now the carrots to and so I, I, I just love that it's like a continuous credit gag that the carrots always are about to have a moment and then never get one. <laughs> <laughs> but with that, we're out on um, Return of the Killer Tomatoes, Andy. Yeah, Mitch, hi. Your thoughts this time around? I absolutely love this film. We've talked about some of the, the stuff in this that, that really works in terms of the comedy beats and stuff. I have to say, I think that the fact that it's called Return of the Killer Tomatoes and it's a sequel to Attack of the Killer Tomatoes maybe stops this film being quite as well regarded as the comedy film that it is because it's very funny and it's very clever. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah, I, I, I really love this. Uh, Michael, I thought this was a great pick. It's actually probably my favourite film we've covered in quite a while. Oh, thank wow. you. Um, in terms of something that I just got on board with right away, and now I absolutely 100% will watch all four. You know, what I really just love about this movie, it's exactly as Andy said, It it's really good comedy. I mean, to make a comedy like this requires a lot of skill and a lot of talent and a lot of work. And I think by having that sort of be movie marquee title maybe a lot of people don't realize that there's really truly a great gem 
of, of a film here. And even though it's got its niche aspects, there's so much in this movie that's sort of a fun critique of the time. Like we, we talked about sort of the sexual politics of when T Chad and Tara meet each other, but there's also like little beats throughout, like the idea of the politician that Gangrene and Igor and the tomatoes are going to try and bust out of the prison. Yeah. When we actually see him in the prison, it's like a white collar prison and he's drinking champagne. And it's sort of very applicable today still with the idea of, you know, different kinds of criminals being treated with different kinds of considerations mm -hmm. and, and classism in society and it, it felt very much like a Reaganomics sort of commentary here. Toxic waste, as we know, was a huge factor in a lot of 80s horror movies. So there was just like so many things going on here that felt very of the time, but how they're handled still work today. Absolutely. And I think, um, and you kind of touched on it there as well, I think that like making this film calls on a really strong command of a lot of different kinds of humour. Yeah, I mean, we've done spoofs before, Mitch. We've done, like, student bodies before, right? This is a far yeah, superior yeah. film to student bodies. Far. And, and, and just about in every department, I would say. And I do think that it is slightly hamstrung by its title and... I guess on the surface by its content and I don't think that's fair at all because there's so much going on here and it's, there's so many nice smart little touches that to not see it because of its title is actually doing yourself a kind of injustice well I think I think the truest indicator of like how secretly great this movie is is whenever you hear George Clooney talk about his career and people sort of uh, you know how actors who begin in, in low budget or indie horror they kind of decry them or don't talk about it he always mentions that he most regrets things like Batman and Robin. You never hear him say anything about this movie negative. And I think that tells you everything. Like, here's here's a man who ascended all the way up to, you know, m millions of dollars, Oscars, you know, uh, a palatial estate in Italy. And he began with the tomatoes and he seems to still like them. Moving to Italy to be close to the best tomatoes you can get. Yeah. Yeah, I think like maybe this was where his like career-long love affair with Acapulco Red began. I don't know if that would be a, a commonly found strain in the, the hills of Italy. Well, he can afford to import. That is true, that is true. There's very little that George Clooney couldn't afford. <laughs> he can have any fucking tomato he likes. <laughs> and meanwhile, um, we're sat here with a crappy supermarket no-name brand tomatoes out of a tin, like a animal yeah like a goddamn <laughs> caveman michael great choice i uh, like i say I've, i i love this i will probably watch the original tomorrow yeah, it's right. on amazon prime in the uk by the way if anyone's interested uh, both of them are fantastic fantastic um michael you've been pretty busy what you had going on uh, well, I mean, like everybody, uh, the last year or so, it certainly threw me for a curveball. I uh, had continued to write scripts and, uh, you know, was, was just trying to find new ways to be creative because a lot of my film and TV projects that I regularly work on or was working on uh, were postponed until, you know, the world got a handle on COVID-19. And I am the kind of person that I don't like to sit still, even if I am, you know, figuring things out from home, I want to make stuff. And so very, very early on in, in the lockdown uh, uh, during the pandemic, I had created a short film called Unusual Attachment, which you mentioned at the top of the show, uh, that was made entirely remotely uh, and used uh, a lot of um, VFX and actors from afar to tell a story story of sort of post-apocalyptic means that unfurl over screens. And it got a nice little bit of attention. Uh, we released it at the end of April last year because uh, we made it fairly early on. Mm -hmm. um, and I had been contacted by Deku, which is a, uh, a gay streaming service here stateside. And I think that they're uh, in the UK as well. And they really liked Unusual Attachment and asked if uh, I would be interested in doing a story in that format. And I and my production partner, Brandon Kirby, we came up with a, a story called So Far So Close, which is a mini-series uh, anthology all about our lives as they connect to screens and how we use screens to kind of live out these personas uh, that we create for ourselves and um, just how everyone's always looking to make a connection. It's not a horror story, but I think that anybody who has existed on the internet long enough can agree that it still can be horrifying. And yeah, that, that's 
that's coming out at the beginning of February, February 5th, all eight episodes co-created by us. Uh, we had three writers, two directors, 21 actors uh, across two continents. Uh, we're yeah. very excited about it. So, And then I've just got uh, some movies that I'm waiting to make when it's safe to make them, and uh, hopefully people come and check them out. Uh, also, I just want to say quickly, um, as part of the uh, So Home Horror Festival over here, I caught Death Simber. Oh, uh, yes. Just before Christmas there, and um, I like my favorite of the segments, actually, was the one that you wrote, um, uh, All Sales Fatal. Oh, thank you. Yes. Uh, All Sales Fatal was uh, really just sort of my kind of shell shock of having worked retail when I was uh, in college. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Death Simber was a really awesome project to be involved in. Uh, It was produced out of Germany, and they had uh, contacted something of like 27 international filmmakers, and it's a holiday horror anthology that set up like an advent calendar where uh, every filmmaker gets a limited amount of time to tell a holiday horror story. And uh, they reached out to me because, as some folks may know, outside of the world of genre, I also have had a little bit of a life writing holiday films for television. And they were like, we know you do horror, we know you do these kind of Christmas movies, but you've thus far never kind of crossed the genres. Mm -hmm, Would you be interested in doing a holiday horror piece for our movie? And I was like, yeah, but if I do, I want to write it about something that scares me about the holidays. And I didn't want to do a Krampus. I didn't want to do a Killer Santa because I figured someone else would do that. And I just kind of dug deep and I was like, well, I find shopping at Christmas time horrifying. So that's what my piece is going to be about. And uh, so the script came fairly easily. And I uh, then when I was casting, I, I was so lucky to get Tiffany Shepis and uh, Jeffrey Reddick, creator of Final Destination, yeah. is in it as a, like a charity Santa outside ringing the bell. And yeah, it was just like a really fun time. It was fun to direct it was a very uh sticky day because there's a lot of blood before the end but um sure uh, i'm very happy with it and i'm happy to know that um people connect i think it's all because we've all have a little bit of shopping shell shock from the holiday season absolutely yeah yeah michael this has been great where can people get you on social media if they want to catch up with you uh the best place to get in touch with me on social media is twitter and it's just my name at michael Verratti. uh it's also I'm Michael Verratti on Instagram as well. Uh, so yeah, one of those. Great. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. And yeah. thanks for bringing uh, Return of the Killer Tomatoes to the table. Well, it was my pleasure. I am so excited to spread the gospel of tomatoes across the world. <laughs> <laughs> you're, uh, paint, you're painting yourself there as a, someone that should be watched quite closely, Michael, because of your willingness to tomatoes. Well, I, I, you heard it here first. I'm a tomato sympathizer. In case you didn't notice from the last name, I am Italian. So we, we are a nation of tomato sympathizers. You're going to get yourself on a watch list with that Tana talk, you know? (laughs) Michael, thanks so much. So Andy, in the run-up to this, you, I think, were a little bit apprehensive about how you thought I would find this one, but I really enjoyed the film and I enjoyed the chat even more. <laughs> yeah, I was nervous, I've got to be honest, because sometimes when a film comes up that I've seen and I know you haven't, I'm very much like, oh, this could go either way here for Mitch, because <laughs> to be honest, I never know what the fuck you're going to make of a film. Every time I think I know, I'm wrong. Yeah, um, I think I probably am quite unpredictable in that way, to be honest. It's the only thing about you, Mitch, that is unpredictable. It's true, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very much a creature of habit the rest of the time. But I'm so glad you like this. And uh, just for anyone who's interested, I'm going to put the opening theme tune at the end of this episode because it's fucking dynamite. Oh, yes. Yes, amazing. And big thank you, of course, to Michael Verratti for joining us this week. Uh, hopefully we'll have him back at some point. I love that. Yeah, well, lovely man. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, we're done for another one uh, with that. However, we'll be back on Monday with another mini-sode, doing all the usual things on there. Nature will continue to go wild under Andy's rigorous supervision. We'll be talking about what we have been watching. We'll be taking a look at your feedback, playing Mitch's pitches, and letting you know everything you need to know, of course, for this Friday's main episode. I wonder if you can guess what it might be yeah if you've been keeping account if you pay attention to the normal habits you might have a hunch but yeah all will be revealed this monday in the meantime if you want to get in touch with us you can of course facebook and instagram are strong language violent scenes you can tweet us at strong violent pc and you can email strong language violent scenes at gmail.com don't forget also we've got the chud locker our facebook group join the conversation over there too yep and be mercilessly free of my bullshit because i don't see it <laughs>
<laughs> Andy, we have a Patreon. We do have a Patreon, Mitch. It's funny that you mention that because we're starting to put stuff up again. It's patreon.com forward slash strong language violence scenes. Yeah, some uh, some content already out there this month, some more to come, so watch this space. Head over there, there's loads of tears, see if there's anything that catches your eye. However, we're back on Monday with another mini-sode. Join us then if you can, and in lieu of some advice about chuds, take it away. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.